0: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest today is Paul Theroux, the globe-trotting writer with more than 50 fiction and non-fiction books to his name. He's taken his readers from Cairo to Cape Town, around the coast of Britain and through the southern United States. And one of his most famous tales, Mosquito Coast, gave rise to a film starring Harrison Ford, In 2015, Paul was awarded the prestigious Royal Medal for travel writing from the Royal Geographical Society. No small beer, as past recipients have included David Livingstone and Captain Robert Scott. His latest novel dives into the world of Joe Sharkey, a big wave surfer in Hawaii, confronting his age and mortality. The book is published in the same month its author celebrates a milestone birthday, his 80th. This year marks yet another milestone for Theroux. It's the first in 40 that he's not travelled widely internationally. So this week we're asking, what does a travel writer learn from staying home? Paul Theroux, welcome to The Economist Asks.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Anne.
0: Now, it's the first year in I think four decades that you've not travelled for your work. What's the year been like for a travel writer who can't travel internationally?
1: I can't travel internationally, but I come from a big country with a lot of roads. So last November, I got my car in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and I drove 3,000 miles cross-country. Six days, I went 500 miles a day, and I stopped at a lot of ghostly motels and I drove in daylight, so it was a kind of a panning shot from the east coast to the west coast. I ended up in Pasadena, California, and that was my travel. I haven't done any international travel, as you say, but I have done a lot of traveling. I'm speaking to you from Hawaii now. I can go to the beach, I can walk around, I can ride my bike, I have a an outrigger canoe, I can paddle my outrigger canoe, I can read. So what's it been like in the lockdown? Not bad for me. I've had two vaccinations. So I'm lucky. But I had planned to go to Central Africa. And that plan is on hold.
0: You're used to having the world as your oyster. Does that bother you, that sense of feeling that it's closed off a little?
1: Oh, yes. Yes, it has. But it's also, it's opened a new reality. There are a lot of enlightenments from this. And one of the enlightenments is seeing the way things were. Travelling cross-country, I had no problem. There were no traffic jams. That was the way life was when I was much younger. And I realized that maybe that's not a bad thing, that fewer people are traveling. You don't really need to go to Istanbul or, or Bangkok to travel. You can travel in a smaller
0: orbit. It's interesting you said something in the past, which is a writer tends to notice things that other people do not notice, uh, and they're noticing so they can write it about it. Have you noticed something new, maybe about yourself in this period, as you're able to perhaps take that time, as you suggest the pace of life has slowed? What, what does that bring out to your writer's eye?
1: You know, I should say that most Writers, most writers that I know or know of, spend most of their lives locked down at home at a desk. Uh, being locked down is nothing new f- for a writer. So, uh, what people are experiencing, you know, people are saying to me, it's awful, I'm home all the time, you know, I don't know what to do with the kids, I'm home, I can't leave. And I think that's not news to me. You're now describing the life I've lived for the past 60 years you describe me as a traveller, and I am, I am a traveller, but I'm an occasional traveller. I travel seasonally, let's say. Two or three months on the road, then home, then another couple of months driving to Mexico, as I did for my last book. But in general, I'm at my desk. Sitting is part of writing. It's sitting, not, not, not writing, but being at your desk, sitting down, being home.
0: The latest novel to come out of all that sitting not just sitting, I think, (laughs) sitting and and working while sitting, is called Under the Wave at Waimea. It's set in Hawaii, where you've lived for some time, and the central character is Joe Sharkey. He's a 60-year-old surfer, and and a lot of the book feels like he's coming to terms with his age. We're speaking to you a few days before your 80th birthday, I think we can reveal. And is the book a reflection on how you feel at, at the moment about age in the passage of time?
1: Yes. I mean, Joe Sharkey is a a surfer who doesn't read, <laughs> spends a lot of time either on his surfboard or or sitting on his porch looking at the sunset. I, it's my most autobiographical book, <laughs> I think. Yes, I feel my age. I, I feel like Joe Sharkey, and not only feeling my age, but also one of the things that bothers Joe Sharkey, or at least makes him reflect, is that there's a whole generation nipping at his heels, maybe maybe who, who pass by him. People are saying to me all the time, have you read this hot new book? <laughs> I think, what about me? <laughs> you know, I've got a book coming out, hot new book, hot new writer. That's what surfers all, are, are always coping with. So a surfer, He's on the beach and someone's saying, Hey, look at that. He's really a hot dog. Look at that guy out there on the wave. And the surfer's thinking, I want to get on that wave. I can do it. I'm you know, I still have my mojo. I still have my stoke. I haven't lo- lost my stoke. So I can relate to aging and also to the fact that the younger surfer, the younger writer, hasn't seen what I've seen. I've lived through amazing. Amazing times through the 60s, through the Vietnam War, through civil rights movement. I've known great writers. I knew Graham Greene. I knew V.S. Pritchett, Angus Wilson, Jonathan Rabin, many other people. I mean, so aren't you interested in that? And surfers say the same thing. I surfed with Garrett McNamara. I surfed with Jock Sutherland. McNamara surfed the biggest wave in the world, 78 feet. Do you want to hear about that? And they said, no, 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 man. What about me? It's a book about... Not about surfing, about, but about surfing a wave, being on a wave. Well, we're all on a wave.
0: Does that sense, as you say, and I think you put it very well, that ambition and the desire to be recognised for creativity, for what you've made, doesn't dim. Why should it? With the passing of the years or just a number on a calendar or a cake. But does advancing age inform the way that you travel in the sense of making more strategic decisions that there's Certain parts of the world you either want to see or want to see again or, or, frankly, might want to avoid.
1: Oh, yes. When you start traveling, you think that you're a fairly important person, that you're coming into a place. You're the, you're the new thing and, you, and people are looking at you and you're, and you're writing, even when you're writing. I mean, my early books, I'm writing about myself a lot of the time. I like this. I don't like that. I'm tasting that. I'm doing this. Then you realize you get older. Other people are more interesting than you are. They have better stories than you have. And you realize ultimately that you're very small. You're actually a very insignificant person. And the people that you're traveling among have big lives. So they've they've seen things that you haven't seen. So it's um, that, that humility is helpful. As, so as you get older, I think your ego fades. I mean, ideally, as a traveler, your ego begins to diminish or fade. And the book becomes about something else. The book becomes about... The people that you meet, the places that you're in—it's not about you, little you. I actually think that my later books are better. There's less of me in it. And there's more of other people, and I've learned a lot. But the main thing that I've learned is that I'm nothing. I'm 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 just an an observing eye or a listening ear.
0: Well, speaking of that ob- observing eye, I think it'd be very nice to get a flavour of, of the book, and I think you're going to read us a short passage which introduces us to Joe Sharkey and what's on his mind.
1: Sharkey's thinking about surfing and he says, uh, the appeal of surfing to Sharkey was that it was improvisational, a question of balance, of staying on your board in a radical feathering wave, a dance on water, at its best, a display of originality, perhaps not a sport at all, but a personal style, a way of living your life, A game without rules, incomparable. And some of the greatest rides on the biggest waves were never seen by anyone except the surfer. The surfer rode the wave, the wave blobbed softly, and it was over. The epitome of performance art. The surfer paddled to shore, the wave was gone. There was no trace of the ride. Something like a fabulous death.
0: Lovely and evocative already of the way that you write and how much of that mirrors the way that you think about writing and that sense of the bits that are gone or the bits that don't get published or the parts that somehow hit the footnotes.
1: We're all surfing a wave, we're all trying to get to shore. We're all, divorce is a wave, unemployment is a wave, the pandemic is a wave. We're all kind of surfing it and trying to deal with it and trying to figure out a way of of surfing this wave so we don't wipe out, so we don't fall, so that we can actually get to a safe place. But I would say also that in terms of obscurity, the the surfer doesn't know whether anyone's watching him. The writer doesn't know whether anyone's listening or anyone cares about what he or she is writing. So when I began writing, I never said to anyone, I never, certainly never said to my parents, I want to be a writer. I always said, I'm going to be a doctor. People would say, with the supplementary question, well, what are you going to write? Who's going to publish it? Who's going to read it? They ask all these awkward questions. A surfer could say, I'm going to South Africa, to Jeffreys Bay has a great wave. Tahiti has a great wave. Most people would say, you're going there, how are you going to get there? How are you going to surf the wave? What are you going to do? You need a lot of courage. You need a lot of conviction, I suppose. And there are very few people who offer encouragement, of the kind of encouragement that you need. I had it actually quite early in my life, and in my book, there's a character who helps, my character, he helps Joe Shockey. He's called Uncle Sunshine. Well, <laughs> the man in my life was V.S. Naipaul. Naipaul's middle name was Suraj Prasad, which means sunshine, or sun, sun worshipper, sun appraiser. Joe Shockey has this guy teaching him how to surf. Naipaul gave me the encouragement that I needed, although I fell out with him and wrote a book about him, a breezy, a breezy book about our relationship. Uh, I then reconnected with him in the last eight years of his life, and we became quite friendly. Naipaul helped me discover how to surf the wave. He 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 said, "You're going to be all right." He encouraged me. He read what I I, I had, and so the, the the solitude of writing was diminished. I had someone who believed in me, and Joe Sharkey in the book has someone who believes in him. So it's it's a book about, <laughs> ostensibly about a surfer and surfing, but it's a book about life, about actually ha- gaining the uh, confidence to, to do something very difficult.
0: I think what's very interesting about your writing as I've experienced it over the years, it, it's that fascination with the natural world, but people are absolutely interwoven with it. You're not a travel writer, I think, who th- thinks that kind of the people come second. And that leads to that leads to strong relationships. You've mentioned some of the people that you were friendly with, including the late Graeme Green. You've also had your feuds, your feud with V.S. Naipaul, another great uh, writer, was kind of legendary feud. And looking back, I mean, how do you feel about the intensity of your friendships and enmities?
1: I think in writing, it's very important, particularly if, you, if you're starting off writing, to have someone, not someone in your family, but someone who you admire to believe in you. And uh, Naipaul was that for me. He used to read stuff that I've written. He was very tough on it. Sometimes he criticized, but he would say, but you're going to be all right. And he often said, don't make a lot of money before you're 40. If you earn a million dollars before you're 40, you'll be destroyed. Don't do it. Money was on Naipaul's mind a lot because he always felt undervalued as a writer. He always wanted more money and more readers. But we all bought that. I mean, I, uh, when I fell out with him, it wasn't really a feud. What happened was he remarried. And, and and I'm very friendly with his new wife. Nedra Naipaul and I are best friends. She has a sisterly relationship with my wife. So it all came together. But, um, And Nadara says, you know, I caused the divorce. But it's an interesting, I mean, that book, Servidia's Shadow, is one of my favorite books of the books that I've written, because it describes the ups and downs of a writer's life. I mean, the things that matter, being accepted, being published well, or being ignored, or domestic life, just the circumstances of writing a book, which which you never hear about. Having Naipaul as a friend really batted a lot.
0: But you see, I wonder whether, this is a bit provocative of me, but I also wonder whether fallings out between writers who are both Passionate committed people. Whether it, it gets more incendiary because you're actually so good with words and you know how to use them to wound as, as well as to delight. I mean, you described Naipaul as a depressive, as a skinflint, and in part a misogynist, and he calls you a bore, overstate his welcome. I shouldn't be laughing at that. I don't mind laughing at that. But it's a bit. You know, it does. It has a slightly. I'll give as good as I get quality. Does that make you think, gosh, when writers fall out, they're actually quite dangerous because of the weaponry of their words?
1: Of course, yeah. I mean, But you notice it's done through writing. It's not on television yelling at each other. They're writing uh, <laughs> poison pen letters to each other. But I would also say that that book, Savilia Shadow, and, then, and writer friendships in, in general, like Dickens and Thackeray, for example, or HG Wells and George Orwell, is that it's never really equal. One day Orwell, for example, was was just a, was a journalist attacking HG Wells, and Wells was an older writer getting very angry. So Orwell wrote, Hitler, Wells, and the world state. Then they had lunch, and Wells was very cross, and they were swearing at each other, words you can't repeat on The Economist's podcasts. Even though the economist may ask. So down one day, up the next day. When I met Naipaul, he was a very well known, well well respected writer, uh, reviewer for The New Statesman. Then he went into a kind of eclipse. Uh, He had a very difficult time. He worked for a long time on a book. That book was totally unsuccessful. It was called The Loss of El Dorado. He slaved on it. It's a wonderful book, but it wasn't the book that the publisher expected. And Naipaul was really out to lunch. I mean, at that time, my fortunes rose. So I was writing books that were well-received, and I was making money at a time when Naipaul was down. Later on, Naipaul got a knighthood, and I was banished from Great Britain.
0: Well, Well, you say banished because you felt...
1: No, 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 no. My marriage ended. So I was banished.
0: That kind of banished.
1: That kind of banished. Yeah. The point I'm making is that it's down one day, up the next. I mean, Thackeray said to Dickens, "We've been fools long enough." It was on the steps of the Athenaeum. We've been fools long enough. Let's be friends. And and they were friends. And and with Naipaul, I used, I met him at the Hay Festival, and I said. I miss you," he said. "Paul, I, I miss you." He said, "I miss you too," and we became friends. And I, I was f- friendly for the last eight years of his life. You know, friendship isn't a love affair. A friendship is is a much purer thing, deeper in some respects, is more solid, a greater subject, really, than a love affair. So that was my relationship with that Paul, and I think it was very important. But it wasn't. It wasn't equal. He was older than me, and, and anyway, he ended up with a Nobel Prize, and where am I?
0: It's interesting that you talk in such an intense way about friendship. And I rather agree. I think it can be underweighted as as something of intense passions and emotions. But family is inevitably, sometimes inescapably, at the heart of life. And and yours is prolific. And two of your brothers are writers and your sons, are Louis and Marcel, are documentary makers. And writers. Your nephew Justin is an actor. In fact, I think he's filming a remake of The Mosquito Coast, your novel at the moment. So give us a bit of an insight, if you could, into what a Theroux family dinner party is like when such luxuries are afforded to us.
1: You can read a Theroux family dinner party in a novel called Motherland. It's a battle. It's everyone trying to talk at once. I think one of the reasons I left home and went far away was to get away from this teasing, gossiping, backstabbing, competitive, rancorous family that I described in Motherland. Very important for me actually. One thing that a very big dysfunctional family teaches you is how to negotiate it makes you a great traveler because when you go to a place especially a hostile place you realize that you have to ingratiate yourself with other people and you have to watch very closely what they're doing anyone in a big family does that they're very watchful if there's a lost biscuit on a plate an only child has a much more difficult time in the world that's the family I grew up in my immediate family my kids Marcel and Louie I love um, being with them, but they tease me. They, what you see Marcel and Louis on documentaries, teasing, needling, poking fun, or whatever it is, um, or try, trying to elicit a response, I get that all the time.
0: And Do you ever feel that you've been on the end of the Louis Through technique, shall we say?
1: Since he was a little kid. I, I've been a foil, or oh, he's been a needle. Louis perfected his technique at home, and Marcel the same, but Marcel is a wonderful writer. Louis is a marvelous, um, Documentary maker and they're great conversationalists. They also have taught me a lot. Children are great educators of, of their parents. I think I didn't actually get that at home in my in my the family I grew up in. I learned just techniques of um, fencing fencing techniques of so teased unmercifully, but my kids who have had a much better education than I've had, so I've learned a lot from them. I love being with them.
0: But it did, it did occur to me as you, you were talking, Paul, is whether those who travel a lot for work and travel professionally to, to write, does it isolate you from your, your family? But do you think you were a good father in the years when you were traveling perhaps more intensely than you are now?
1: I think so. Yeah, I spent most of my time at my desk. So when I lived in London, I was home most of the time. I took the kids to school. I took them to the bus stop. Uh, I was home. When they came home from school, I often made their tea. I watched television with them. I helped them with their homework. And my wife at the time went to work. When you're home, a writer home is, is intensely home. You asked whether I was a good father. I think, I think I was. You'd have to ask them that though, whether they agreed. Being away, they missed me and it was, it was difficult. Although I must say, when my wife at the time went away, I thought, why do women complain about being home? I love being home. With my children alone, children behave better when there's only one parent there. They, they they they're not they don't see parents competing. They don't appeal to the other parent. I loved it. I loved it. I had them all to myself, and I thought, this is wonderful. But a traveler's life isn't different from a soldier, a fisherman, a sailor, someone who's away by the force of circumstances, making a living. They cope. They're not neglecting their families. They're actually supporting them. So that's the way I felt.
0: As we go back to thinking about travel and the pandemic and the questions we're asking ourselves about resets, how should we look at travel? There's increasingly an environmental case against too much, too frequent travel, particularly air travel. Does that inform the way that you look at the whole undertaking?
1: I think the pandemic has been... Are beneficial in this respect it's shown perhaps there's too much tourism a lot of countries are unsustainable before the pandemic 10 million tourists came to hawaii annually can you imagine 10 million tourists to this little archipelago that's more than india gets it's also i mean maybe it'll reacquaint people with where they live a man was complaining i was on another podcast a man was complaining he was in new mexico albuquerque new mexico complaining that they had planned a trip to bangkok I said, you don't have to go to Bangkok. Drive a few hours down to the border. You'll be in a foreign country, a new language, a different culture, a place where there's great writers, there's great music, there's fabulous history. You don't have to go to Bangkok. Or someone in Charleston, South Carolina, a salubrious place. Why can't they go to Istanbul or wherever? Go to Allendale, South Carolina, which is the third poorest county in the United States, Allendale County. I, I, I travel there in my book Deep South. It looked like Zimbabwe. You don't have to go to Zimbabwe, go there. And and you'll see poverty, a bad housing, segregation, all of it. People having a really difficult time. That's travel, if you want to see something. Arkansas is a very dysfunctional state. There's child hunger, there's illiteracy, you know there's You don't really have to go to South Africa to save people. You don't have to save Africa, save the Ozarks. This notion that that travel has something to do with seeing the Shwedagon Pagoda or learning to use chopsticks in Japan or something like that is wrong. I think that you need actually to realize that there are places nearer home 10 times more interesting and probably need saving too.
0: For the last question, I might let you roam the planet because you've seen so much of it. If you did get to choose where the last place would be, that you would travel to that was going to really mark the end of the road, if there is such a thing for a, a travel writer, where would you choose?
1: The place I love most is home. I live in Hawaii and I have another home in Cape Cod. So if you're, you're saying, where am I happiest? Where do I want to go? Go home. If you're asking me though, in a kind of metaphysical sense, what would be an important place? It would be the first place that I experienced as a, as a, as a real traveller. I was a teacher in a small school. In the southern region of Malawi, which was Nyasaland, British Nyasaland, uh, when I was there, it became independent when I was there, in July 1964. I would like to go back to my school, see the little, very simple house that I lived, the village nearby. I'd like to know what happened to my students. That's the ultimate for me. is going back to a place that I knew well, knew intimately. I still speak the language. I still speak Chichewa because it tells you what happened to the planet, what happened to the, the world, what happened to Africa, what happened to the, the students. The ultimate trip for me is a trip
0: to the past. Send us a postcard in Chichewa when you get there.
1: <laughs> I'll do that, Anne. It's great speaking to you.
0: the roof thank you very much indeed for joining us on your odyssey. Thank you. And as ever, we'd love to hear from you too. Where have you been travelling to, maybe vicariously through books or films or social media in the lockdown? And where would you like to explore when travel resumes? Write to us, radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For the best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers today were Alicia Burrell and Amika Shortino-Nolan. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.